Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we are still working through Jesus' thinking and teaching uh, with the parable of the sower, even as we are adding uh, more text to what we've already been doing. We are in chapter 8, and we're going to begin with verse 15, which is actually the last verse uh, of Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. Here it is, 8.15. As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not... Even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, as we often pray in these times, we pray for the Spirit to be amongst us that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, just as Jesus promised, that we would be a people who are of the good soil, who listen to his word, and we do it. We pray all of these things in his name, again, through that same Spirit. Amen. Well, interpreting passages like today's passage can be difficult for us because culturally, uh, we tend to see the world as hyper-individualists, whether we, we realize that or not. In fact, in some ways, we tend to read passages like this one, uh, or even the whole Bible itself at times, as liberals. And what I mean by that is we, we think of it in terms of my experience or my feelings or how this affects me. And of course, there is something to that. So a But that's not exactly what Jesus wants us to do. In fact, in many ways, it is not what he wants us to do at all. So a typical reading of our passage is to see it, for example, as a warning to be careful about how you, singular, live your life because the secret things of your life will be laid bare. That's partly right. I mean, how we each live our lives in relationship to Jesus is of utmost importance, But that's not what he's after. We never live in isolation. In fact, it's impossible to live like this. And what Jesus is after, while it certainly does affect us as individuals, is really about the kind of community that he's instituted for us together and for our benefit. So I'm going to go on a limb here and assume that most of you understand how the Gospels talk about Jesus as the Messiah or the Son of God or the king of kings, or as a prophet. So as Hebrews talks about him, prophet, priest, and king. And the shorthand for it is to say that that Jesus is the redeemer, the promised Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who by his resurrection and giving of the spirit has given us life forever and communion with God, even as Jesus rules over all things in heaven and on earth. But his roles as, as prophet, priest, and king are not the only ways that the Gospels talk about Jesus. In fact, they fit into a larger matrix of meaning. So if you just consider the book of Matthew, 
It begins with the genealogy of Jesus, linking him to Adam, Abraham, and David, and then it spends time on a star, on a star that announces Jesus as king. And stars, as we mentioned, I think it was a few weeks ago, are often associated with both political power and spiritual power. In fact, you can get that right from Genesis 1. And that star first takes light over Jerusalem, but it moves out into the wilderness and stops over Bethlehem, the city of David, where Jesus was. And the movement is not merely sort of a, um, a triptych for the Magi. It's marking the shift of power from King Herod to King Jesus. And in turn, it marks where Zion, the true Jerusalem, is located. So it's, it's not bound to a geographical spot. Not even with Jerusalem. It's, it's bound with Jesus. And if Jesus is in Galilee or in the wilderness, that's where Zion is. In Matthew 7, verses 24 and following, when Jesus teaches his famous, uh, build your house upon the rock, that's not merely an architectural illustration. That's how we often take it. But there's actually a whole lot more going on with his, his parable there. And the word for temple, for example, in Hebrew, is actually simply house. It's house, as in 2 Samuel 7, when God promises David that one of his offspring, which would be Solomon, would build God a house for my name. A house for my name. The temple in Jerusalem was also known as the Temple Mount, as in mountain. And it's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 21 when he talks about uh, faith saying to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. He uh, was talking about the temple, and the temple in Jerusalem was built on the rock, the mountain. And the word Zion itself means rock. So when Jesus says that, that famous saying to his disciples, he's not saying, listen, you're going to be so powerful in your faith, you can move mountains. That's not what he's after at all. That's a liberal reading of it. That's not what Jesus was after. Jesus was saying that the current temple, this house, this rock, is nothing in light of me. That temple will soon be judged and destroyed. I am the true and better temple. Thus, when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So his mentioning of the wise, first of all, signals Psalm 1 kind of language, which we've been talking about. Who is the righteous man? He's like a tree planted next to living streams of water. But his mentioning of the flood has clear allusions to the flood of Genesis 6 through 9. That's certainly how they would have heard it. And his point is this. God's judgment, like the flood, is coming to Jerusalem and the corrupt temple, only this flood here is the Roman Empire, and the corrupt temple and those who worship in that place will not withstand it. Only those who worship in the true temple, who is Jesus himself, listening to him and doing what he says, like Noah did with Yahweh, will be able to withstand the coming judgment because they are safe in Christ. They are safe in the ark in the true temple, again, Jesus himself. So in other words, Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of Solomon's temple where his people gather with God in him. It's why he is the head and we are his body. We are in communion together with God through Jesus 
the temple, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is all over the New Testament. That's why Paul says things like, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, John makes similar claims too in his gospel. Jesus is the word of God, the very word from Genesis 1, through whom and for whom all things were made. He is the light shining in the darkness, like the star of Matthew's gospel. And what was promised in Isaiah 9, he is the one who has tabernacled among us, or as Isaiah 7 calls him, Emmanuel, God with us. That is the one. He is that light shining. And when God tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness, it was literally the elaborate tent that was patterned on God's throne room, and God gave that pattern in explicit detail to Moses with explicit instructions on how to make it. In many ways, it's a replay of Genesis 1 that God, through his word, created the heavens and the earth, and here again, he's doing it with Moses in the creation of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was in the center of Israel's camp in the wilderness. They camped patterned around him right there in the middle of the wilderness. So at the heart, at the center of Israel's life was communion with God in the tabernacle. And John says, Jesus is that tent. He has tabernacled among us. He is the same God of the wilderness who led Israel and made his home in the center of them. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives us the words to Jesus' first sermon, which come as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. We've read them, I'm going to say, 10 times since we covered that passage. We're going to do it again because it's important. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the proclamation of what the Messiah will do, which is what that is, the Messiah says that. It comes between, obviously, Isaiah 60 and 62. Isaiah 60 is about the promised coming glory of, uh, of Israel, the glory that will come and make Israel glorious. And Isaiah 62 is about the promised coming of the city of God, Zion, the rock itself. And Luke's point, and he shares this view with the other apostles as well, is that Jesus himself is the promised glory of Israel and the city of God, Zion. So is Jesus literally a house or a temple or a big elaborate tent or a city or a rock? No, but his kingdom involves, all that imagery involves a real group of people who are living in communion with him and each other who have been given his glory Together and in turn have been made to be lights to the world. So Jesus is building a people. A people, not a bunch of individuals. So when we read about the good soil, for example, that's not merely a you. It's a y'all. And you have to read it that way or else you, you misunderstand it. The good soil, as Jesus says in verse 15, are those that... Hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So it's hearing and doing versus offering sacrifices and burnt offerings like we talked about last week from Psalm 40. These are the people who do not offer God lip service, merely offering 
burnt sacrifices, but they offer their very lives, their very hearts to him in respond in response, excuse me, to his word and the gift of life. So the good soil is is similar to everyone who builds their house on the rock. They are the ones who hear Jesus' words and do them. In verse 16, Jesus, through another quick parable, gives the context for where this growth in good soil happens. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So this is the picture of a house where a lamp has been lit, and no one puts the lamp under a bed or attempts to cover it with a bit of pottery or something like that. No, you put it in a central place where everyone who enters the house can see the light and see by the light. So the imagery of the house is, again, temple language. Jesus is describing the people in communion with him who gather together in worship of God through Jesus and the power of the Spirit who have ears to hear and eyes to see. So, for good reason, in the book of Revelation, Jesus describes the seven churches as both stars and lamps that Jesus holds in his hands. And the idea is that Jesus, the light of the world and the glory of Israel, again, Isaiah 60, has made his people glorious too that they too can shine. Again, that's Isaiah 60. And it's like what he says in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light uh, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So whereas we typically interpret this as our individual actions out in the world, as if all by myself, I can be a city on a hill. Jesus describes his people here together, not you, y'all. In particular, the dedicated pattern of listening to him and doing what he says in community. Verse 16 has in view exactly what we see in the early part of the book of Acts, which is incredibly practical. A community centered on the word, the sacraments, and prayer, who in turn, as the book of 1 John repeats over and over again, are learning to love one another as Christ has loved you. So what is so often misunderstood in our times is that while it is possible to survive as a Christian by yourself for a time, like a burning charcoal separated from the pile, well, without the life of the church, you will eventually flame out and grow cold. No individual can be a light to the world. None. No individual can be a city on a hill. Jesus alone can do that. And even then, his point is to gather people to himself, to give his glory, and to make them, in turn, to be lights together. Evangelicals have often made the mistake, however, of thinking uh, that a Christian celebrity or a celebrity pastor or an ex-pro athlete carries more weight as if they are a great big shining light all on their own. 
If we can just get that famous guy who professed Christ, oh boy, we're going to bring a whole lot more people to faith because his light is so much brighter. You know, of course, past presidents and pastors have misunderstood Jesus and tried to apply a city on the hill to the United States. The kingdom of God is not reducible to a single modern nation state. No, Jesus gives his glory to a people. He has made his people to be a light together, and they are not bound by geography or nationality. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And people sometimes think Jesus means your secret sins will come to light, or perhaps the evils concealed from public view will eventually become known. And I suppose there is something to that, though I would say, thank God not all of my sin has come to light, and thank God not all of yours has either. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. If you read this in the context with verse 10, what Jesus means becomes evident. He says in verse 10, if you flip back to that, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are imparable, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now remember, what Jesus says in verse 10 is in response to the disciples' request for the meaning of the parable. He had just said the parable and stopped and kept on going, and they were like, Jesus, I have no idea what this means. What does this mean? And that's what he says in response. And then he, of course, explains the parable itself. What he's after here is that Jesus has given the secrets of the kingdom to those who hear him and follow him, namely his disciples at this point, they won't remain only with the disciples, and has kept those secrets from the scribes and the Pharisees who refuse to listen. They could have them, but they say thanks but no thanks and reject him. And what Jesus has revealed to the disciples in this particular case, the meaning of the parable of the sower, is at this point insider knowledge, but it won't remain that way. It won't remain that way. The secrets of the kingdom will become an open Secret. Think about that. That seems like a mutually exclusive term. An open secret? Leslie Newbigin described it that way as a former missionary. And they will be made known. These secrets will be made known and will come to light through his people. So that means that what, what seems hidden now, what seems laughable to the world right now, what Jesus calls the glory of Israel, a city on a hill in Zion itself, will eventually be seen for what it really is. And its true reality will be seen by all. So the mustard seed of the kingdom will grow, as we've talked about, into a mighty tree. And of course, we can all clearly see what Jesus is talking about, even as we, we know culturally so many people are blind to it. As Jesus indicates in verse 17, the secrets of the kingdom of God will be made known in the kingdom, centered on the light, that is, Jesus among people who listen to him and do what he says. So in other words, God's plan for making the truth and reality of Jesus known to the world is through the people gathered together in worship of him. Therein, Jesus says to take care. Take care of how you hear. And I think this is a, a call to self-reflection for the community centered on Jesus itself. So if you think about that parable and what just experientially what's been happening this far, in the parable of the sower, everywhere Jesus scattered his word, people listened to it. 
At least to some extent, they had ears. But in the end, only one reaction, one out of four, by the way, only one reaction, only one hearing was considered good soil. And it is a temptation, even within that group, even within the community centered on Jesus, the community that has ears to hear, his church, there's still a temptation to become lackadaisical in how they hear. So, for example, across the book of Hebrews, there is the repeated warning not to neglect various things related to life in the body of Christ. In 2.3, it is the warning to not neglect your salvation. As it says there, you neglect your salvation by not paying close attention to the word you have received and in turn living by it. It's exactly what Jesus says, hear and do. From the creation of Adam Ford, a fully alive human is someone who has an ear to God's word and lives by it. That's not perfectionism. Lots of people see that and they despair. It's not perfectionism. Because there's always the provision for forgiveness and repentance. God knows who we are. He's not after perfectionism, but he is after faithfulness. Which, by the way, repentance is part of faithfulness. Faithful people don't have any desire to repent. They don't have any desire to confess their sin and turn. In 10.25, it's the warning to not neglect meeting together for worship and encouragement and in turn stirring each other up for love and good works. That's part of the purpose of the church. The book of Hebrews sees neglecting the body of Christ and gathered worship as a deliberate sin. It's deliberate. A deliberate sin that leads to death. So think of it this way. If you know this is what a church is, if you know this is what God intends for it, and you say, you know, thanks, but no thanks, I got better things to do. How is that unlike a woman who says, I know who my husband is, but you know what? That dude looks good. It's a deliberate sin. And again, it, it, as the book of Hebrews says, it may lead to death. And again, good luck being a charcoal briquette apart from the pile. Now, in 13.2, it's neglecting to show hospitality to strangers, like Lot did to the angel strangers sent to enact judgment on the city of God. He didn't realize they were angels at first. In 13.6, it's neglecting to do good and share what you have with the people of God for such sacrifices, Hebrews says, as opposed to burnt offerings, are pleasing to God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are pleasing to God when they are lived out in community. So to take care of how you hear is shorthand for centering your life on Jesus, his word, the sacraments, prayer, and his people together. It is from this community, like Israel in the wilderness, tabernacling with God, that all your other relationships are defined and take on their proper role and meaning. So if you look at the wilderness, for example, it's not like they were perpetually in a worship service. They still, had, they still had life they had to do. It was six days of work and a seventh-day Sabbath in which they met together with God. That's the pattern right from Genesis 1 and 2. All of their relationships, whether it's their work, their marriage, their friendships, their recreation, all of it were lived in light of the pattern set by God of six days in worship together with him. So if you neglect the centering of your life in Jesus with his community, guess what? You're going to neglect the proper role for all those other things too. 
And Jesus attaches a reason to his warning about being careful. He says, those who listen and do what he says have already been given the kingdom, and they will receive even more. Even more. And that's exactly what he taught earlier in the Sermon on the Plains in chapter 6, where those who endure with Christ now, and for some Christians, it is exceedingly difficult what they are encountering right now, they will receive far more in the resurrection. Those who reject his word right now, and I think what he has in mind, at least in that moment, are like the scribes and Pharisees, they do not realize that they have nothing, though they obviously thought they were doing pretty well as they sat in judgment over Jesus. But even more will be taken from them at their death, if not before that time. Now, the next three verses seem unrelated to the parable of the sword, but I think they actually complete his thought, going all the way back to his initial giving of the parable. So Jesus' mother and brothers, they come to him, and this means, well, sorry, Catholics, but Mary had other children with Joseph before he died. But there they are, Mary and her other sons, but they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds. And Jesus is told this because what good son wouldn't prioritize his mom and his brothers over a large unknown crowd? And in response, he says, to the crowds, no less, and of course, I'm assuming they heard this too, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Same phrase that he's been hammering over and over again, hearing and doing. Now, humans tend to congregate or form communal bonds around things held in common. That's obvious, right? A typical one is blood lineage or ethnicity. That's just as much a thing for ancient people as it is now. So the Jewish people were set apart as the bloodline, the lineage uh, from which the Messiah would come. And they were a priestly family set apart for the world. That's what they were. But they were never intended to be the only ones. They were never intended to be the only people who were part of the people of God. And in fact, the Old Testament is filled with Gentiles who were engrafted into Israel. So even when Israel came out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, all that stuff, it was a mixed congregation of Jew and Egyptian that over the next 40 years in the wilderness actually became one people. Some scholars think this is why they did not practice circumcision over the course of that 40-year period until they entered the promised land. Even so, it is common for people to have a bond and shared racial lineage. And part of that, of course, is natural, but it can easily turn to wickedness. So the great boogeymen, the great evil of the 20th century, the Nazis certainly understood themselves racially, even as they united themselves probably more so than blood by a shared ideology. And unless you've been living under a rock, race and ideology sometimes together are still dominant ways people bind themselves in communities. So, you know, blue state versus red state, vaccine versus anti-vaccine, Auburn versus Alabama, the neo-confederacy, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, Proud Boys. But there's also language, and within a language group, this is one of the most common ones, right? Within a language group, there's even accent demarcation. And those accents are often regional, right? So I somewhat sound like a Yankee, or some of you say, not somewhat, buddy. Maybe I sound like a Yankee to some of you. So geography often plays a role. North versus South, city versus country, Yankee versus true American. 
their socioeconomic status. And even within the same economic groupings, there's hierarchies based on how much wealth or what material possessions or preferred brands. It goes on and on. So none of these things, ethnicity or language or geography or even schools, in themselves necessarily are evil. But when they become the thing that binds a people together, they will inevitably be united in sin and rebellion against God. And here's the sad irony. Groups in America often do this in God's name. In contrast, what unites God's kingdom is Jesus, even as Jesus does not do away with race or gender or language. He does not. No, he transcends these things and give them, gives them their proper uh, meaning in place. So those who belong to Jesus are not raceless or genderless or speaking neutral universal language. That's preposterous. It is clear from Scripture that God delights in the diversity of languages and races. After all, God did not do away with the diversity of languages at Pentecost. No, he united his people with one confession of faith in Jesus through the Spirit. That's what happens. In Revelation 21, in the description of the new Jerusalem that comes down to the earth, not only does John say that this city will have no temple because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the kings and the nations of the world will bring their glory and their honor to God. So in other words, just think of it. The Chinese, the Slovenians, the Ghanaians, the nations will bring their treasures of their distinctive cultures to their God and King. Even so, what unites God's people is not their cultural treasure. It's that we listen to Jesus and do what he says. It's the reversal of Babel at Pentecost, where instead of the nations being scattered in their rebellion against God, they are united in communion with the Spirit. It's why you will find the church on every continent in hundreds of languages. It's why some of you are closer to your fellow Christians than you are to some of your blood relatives. So put this in the context then of Jesus' mother, Mary. In John chapter 2, at a wedding in Cana, the wine runs out. I'm sure you know this story. The wine runs out, and Mary basically says to Jesus, do something. This is a huge faux pas. Huge faux pas. So she's ordering her son, the Messiah. She knows he's the Messiah. She's ordering him to act. And Jesus responds by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So he doesn't address her as mother. He doesn't say, mama, what are you doing? He doesn't say that at all. But as a disciple, woman, and reminds her that despite their relationship of mother to son, he's the Messiah. And this is a gentle correction to the woman who perhaps better than anyone else should have known who Jesus is. And I would hazard to guess that for Jesus' family, just imagine being Mary or his brothers, it might have been very difficult to place your faith in someone you watched grow up. And her response to his correction is to turn to the servants and say, do whatever he tells you. As in, listen to his voice and do what he says. So she, she goes from being a mother concerned about a faux pas at a wedding, trying to force her son to act, which is not unlike, by the way, the Pharisees demanding signs from Jesus, to being a repentant disciple who listens to his word and does it and in turn calls others to do the same. In fact, she does it like that. It's really a beautiful 
beautiful moment. So while what Jesus said might have been offensive to the crowds, it was not offensive to his mother and his brothers because they too were called to be disciples. So 2,000 years later, the same thing that applied to Mary and her sons applied to us. Jesus is at work in gatherings just like this one, in plain Jane, ho-hum, gatherings like this one. This is where the open secret about Jesus is made known to whoever wants it. Whoever wants it. This is where he has put you with these people to grow and mature in good soil. But when we, we neglect Jesus and his word, his people, that's when we grow cold and we may eventually even die because of it. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life in your Son. Thank you for his word that is evergreen and always good for building us up in faith, hope, and love. And to that end, we ask that you would build us together through your Spirit in him, that we would have ears that would listen and feet that would follow. And we pray this in our King's name, Jesus the Christ. Amen.